Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, the FT's Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator. My goal in this weekly podcast is to bring you conversations from around the world with the decision makers and thinkers who are shaping global politics so that listeners and subscribers can join the conversation. This week's conversation is with Nadia Shadlow, who's widely regarded as the intellectual architect of Donald Trump's foreign policy. Now, I realise that the words intellectual and architecture are not often associated with the Trump administration's approach to the world. The blizzard of tweets and pronouncements from the president give the impression of an uncontrolled and chaotic foreign policy. I am the chosen one. Somebody had to do it. So I'm taking on China. I'm taking on China on trade. And you know what? We're winning. But beyond the president's outspoken statements or tweets, there actually are radical ideas underpinning President Trump's approach to the world. And they were best expressed in the Trump administration's national security strategy published in 2017, a document often referred to as NSS 2017. The main author of that strategy document was Nadia Shadlow, who was then deputy head of the National Security Council in the White House and is now a fellow at the Hudson Institute. Although Shadlow left the administration shortly after the report's publication, the strategy she laid out has remained in place. Since leaving the White House, Nadia Shadlow has kept a fairly low profile, and she took a bit of persuading to do this interview. It also posed a few logistical challenges, since we were meeting in New York in September in the same week that the UN General Assembly was in town, and also, incidentally, on the same day that Congress announced the beginning of impeachment proceedings against the president. Getting around New York in a week in which half the world's leaders are also there is painful, but eventually I met Nadia at the St. Regis Hotel, and we took refuge in a basement banqueting room to have our conversation. I mention that not just so that you can picture the scene, but also to explain the occasional sounds of banging crockery as waiters laid tables around us in preparation for a banquet. I started by asking Nadia Shadlow about the central idea in the Trump national security strategy the notion that the world is entering a new era of great power competition. My job in the Trump administration was primarily to bring together the national security strategy to ensure that it was written in a clear and straightforward way and to ensure that it actually you know, said something, which I think it did. Yeah, its central idea is centered around great power competition. Uh, I don't think, I personally don't use the term return to great power competition because great power competition had been unfolding for quite some time. Watchers of Russia had noticed it. Watchers of China had noticed it. Watchers of the United States had noticed how we were choosing to look the other way in many areas. So I don't use return. I see it as a recognition of the world as it is and as it was. And that idea of a clear description of the strategic environment, which included great power competition, is what the strategy did. And although, as you say, in your view, that competition had actually been unfolding for quite a lot of time, 
What was the significance of changing the description? Why was that important? I think it was it was dramatically important because essentially the first step towards shifting a strategy, especially in a democracy where lots of people are involved in, in making strategy, is to develop the coalitions you need. And to do that, you have to recognize the problems. So you have to speak about them in a clear and straightforward way. And that's what we did in the strategy. And that was really important. There had been many people in the previous administration that had been very concerned about China, for instance. You know, everyone from Undersecretary Bob Work to, you know, many other DOD officials, to many outside in the business community still supportive of the previous administration. But there was concern about calling out China. There was concern that that would be too confrontational. So I think with this president, with President Trump and his willingness to be more disruptive, we were able to be more straightforward in our language and in our description of the problem set. And how does that then play out in policy, I suppose, most obviously with the decision to confront China on trade? Not just on trade, on IP, on IP theft, on uh, forced tech transfers, on lack of reciprocity, and a whole range of issues. So trade was one of the issues. But there's a really interesting report that the USTR, which is the U.S. Trade Representative, put out. I think it's called the 301 Report. I think it was in March of 2017. Now, that report, you know, exists. I think it's a uh, congressionally required report. I'm not a trade or econ person, but that report sets things out very, very clearly. And it's not just about bilateral trade. It's about all of these other issues that I mentioned. You have to talk about those issues before you can get people on the Hill to say, okay, what do we now have to do about them, right? So you have to basically explain what's going on, and then you develop the strategies you need to address the problem. So with IP theft, um, with forced technology transfers, with lack of reciprocity, you've seen lots of changes on the Hill, actually bipartisan changes. And the bipartisan thing, I think, is important to note, maybe because Trump is such a polarizing figure. Really? (laughs) But on China, people might not agree with all the details of what President Trump did, but the Democrats are also up for some form of confrontation. Is that right, do you think? Well, I think they're up for recognizing that the facts are there and no one is disputing the facts, right? No one is actually saying there is reciprocity in China or IP, you know, theft or diversion is not a problem or, you know, um, businesses are treated equally or now, you know, even on the stock market, Chinese companies are as transparent as U.S. companies. No one, you know, people aren't saying that. So as a result... Yes, I think that there is a a bipartisan shift, but also sort of a natural shift to saying, why isn't China changing in these areas? What's the resistance to China sort of acknowledging that these problems exist and working with us to sort of And and that's another thing that you you wrote in the report, which is that you argued that the sort of 20-year bet on engaging China would change China had essentially failed. Right, and actually that's been supported by most all of the China watchers and China experts in the previous administration as well. There's uh, several articles in foreign affairs. Uh, I think Kurt Campbell, who is a high Asia official, literally came out in his foreign affairs piece, co-authored with someone else, um, Ratner, Ratner, Eli Ratner, which actually, you know, basically says the NSS was right. (laughs) They actually don't say that, but they have all the arguments in it. But part of our polarized debate is no one can actually say the White House is right about anything. Okay, so... That document came out in 2017. We're now, you know, two years on. What 
progress do you think has been made? A lot of progress. I mean, first overall, progress is a completely new strategic conversation we're having in this country. And that's completely new, and that's progress for the reasons I described early on, right? You need to have that conversation, build new coalitions to start to change strategy. Then it depends on where you look. I mean, the Defense Department is completely changing the way it's looking at supply chains, which seems a little bit esoteric, but it's not. It means essentially they want to know where all the parts are that are going into our weapon systems that American taxpayers are paying for. Sounds easy. It's not. It's a complicated problem. But had we gone on in the same way, we would have even more problems in the future. So basically, right? you'll be sure that you don't have essential chips being made in China that could be cut off in the event of a war. Right. For so example. they're completely changing the way they're looking at supply chains, at contractors, at those building these weapon systems. We're completely rethinking our operational concepts at DOD as well. If we need to fight, how are we going to fight in these domains, in the South China Sea, and how do we preserve freedom of navigation? We're having these open conversations. Now, of course, we were having them before as well, but articulating the nature of the competition makes it even more imperative. The trade area, I mean, we're seeing a whole host of differences, right, which the Financial Times and everyone else is covering. But, you know, maybe less well-known, the Development Finance Corporation. The Development Finance Corporation is an effort to think through our equivalent of Belt Road Initiative. It's an effort to think through how we can provide choices to countries around the world so they're not dependent just on Chinese financing of infrastructure. That's a bipartisan bill, and it's important and supported by the UK and many other countries who are looking for ways to provide those options to countries around the world. You haven't really mentioned the direct military aspect, but obviously one of the things that had made people rethink about China was the building of these military bases across the South China Sea. And Obama did tentatively start with these freedom of navigation operations and so on. It's not clear to me where the Trump administration has gone on that direct military confrontation, really. Well, the Trump administration doesn't want direct military confrontation with China. The administration wants to deter China. And essentially, the view is that you deter by showing that you have the capability to respond if you need to respond, the willingness to respond if you need to respond. So there's no desire for a direct military confrontation with China. I think it would be hard, frankly, to find evidence of that. But the idea that you deter through strength and through capability and through will, I think that that's what's happening. Is there much evidence, though, that China's been deterred? I mean, you know, the way they talk about Taiwan and so on? Well, I think... You know, I'm not a day-to-day China watcher, but I think, you know, you could look at the Hong Kong response, which has been somewhat muted, some would say, you know, probably could have been harsher. I haven't followed day-to-day the status of where they are in the South China Sea in terms of incrementally what the difference is from two years ago to today. That would be an interesting metric to see as well. So I guess I'd have to look there. I mean, they're definitely probing, right? I was just in Australia, and the Australians are doing a really interesting efforts in the Pacific Islands to uh, sure, push there's, back. There's, there's right, the Chinese right, right. The base there. Right. So, you know, the Chinese are definitely still probing. That's why we speak of this as an ongoing competition, right? This doesn't necessarily have an end state. We need to continue to compete to provide countries with alternatives. I think Australia is a good example of how we can actually learn from what they're doing. You said that the U.S. has no interest in direct military confrontation, but I guess one of the criticisms of the new emphasis on great power competition is that if you downplay 
interdependence, working together on global problems, the kind of thing that Obama tried to stress, not terribly successfully. But if you move quite decisively away from that, then you set a logic of confrontation up that might actually one day culminate in a war. I think you do both. I mean, essentially, there are many, many ongoing efforts now. I mean, we're at UNGA today. The whole administration is here in New York on these empty gridlock streets. The UN General Assembly. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, rethinking the ways that we have done things doesn't mean we are withdrawing from the world or even, you know, withdrawing from these opportunities to talk with other countries. And I think, in fact, the president's been criticized from the right and the left for actually talking to Putin for talking to North Korea, talking to leaders directly, showing a willingness to talk to the Iranians, right? So, I mean, he's willing to talk, to cooperate, to find avenues of cooperation. But ignoring what was happening puts you in a dangerous position down the line and puts you in a much weaker position down the line. So the NSS, the strategy, I think the White House approach has been to call out what's happening doesn't mean you're confrontational. It doesn't mean you're escalatory. It means you're looking at the world the way it is. You mentioned Russia there, and that was the other great power which is highlighted. But the whole early years of the Trump administration were overshadowed by the whole allegation of Russia collusion and so on. So how easy, or I'm sure it wasn't easy, but how possible was it to get out a coherent message about Russia when the president was at various times being accused of being Putin's plaything? Look, I think... You know, I think this has been written about now many times. The administration from the beginning had a very harsh sanctions regime, strengthening of the Magnitsky Act, which the previous administration didn't do. A really good example of, I think, 23 or some somewhere 20 to 30 countries coming together after the poisoning in Britain, in your country. You know, a willingness to provide arms to the Ukrainians, which we're not going to get into today because that's a well, whole issue that... We're yeah, speaking on yeah, the day, of, yeah. um, the day after the president. So sort of, you know, the actual nuts and bolts and an increasing uh, in defense spending in Europe on the European Reassurance Initiative, is it? Or the name shifted to the European defense initiative, essentially, talking about deployments in Poland. So, you know, in terms of actual policy shifts and changes, it's been quite robust. And at the same time, a willingness to talk to the Russians, a willingness to work with them in areas where we can work together. But the INF Treaty, it was known for many, many years that um, it was being violated and it was hurting us and hurting our security interests. And as a result, uh, you you know you don't stay in agreements when they hurt your interests. This is the intermediate nuclear yeah. range uh, yeah. treaty. And why why was it hurting American interests? Well, over time, the Russians were not restricted from developing a really important class of weapons, which, at the very least, we want to have the option to do so as part of how we deter, right? Uh, and there was this concern that China wasn't in it as well. Oh, and China wasn't in it as well. Yeah, that was always a problem as well. What about um, and again, one of the criticisms of the Trump administration's approaches. Well, fine, you recognize what you say is this problem, but the president himself has such an equivocal attitude to alliances, bashing NATO, occasionally saying, you know, the South Koreans should pay more, etc., that he's undermining a really crucial prop of Western power. Look, I think putting pressure on allies and partners to contribute more in different ways ends up strengthening the nature of those alliances and partnerships. You know, we were talking getting over breakfast, you and I, about how polls recently show 
that Europeans are incredibly ambivalent about even identifying Russia as a potential threat, not to mention a willingness to actually, if necessary, you know, deploy troops to defend Europe, basically two polls. There's a Pew poll from 2017, which I've cited in some of my previous writing, but also a recent one I was just reading today as well, which sort of reaffirms that. So I think the problems have been there for a while. And the point you're making is it's not just coming from this, that tacitly the Europeans are undermining the alliance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe we need to have a refreshed conversation about what it means to be an ally and a partner. It's not enough, you know, for Europeans to say, okay, we dislike President Trump so much <laughs> that we're going to do this, right? That doesn't make sense, right? We're about more than just the leaders of our countries. We have a shared common community of democracies among us that we need to all work on. Yeah. You mentioned that President Trump himself is a kind of polarizing figure, not just in the US, but in Europe. What's he actually like to work with? He's he's like, he doesn't hold back. I always had a good working relationship with him. He was very supportive of the national security strategy. It sort of captures the views that he put forth from his campaign up until through his election, through his early speeches from 2017. I always point to that. And if you look at his speeches from January of 2017 through that spring and through that summer, you'll see the strategy, right? It's all intertwined there. Although he also says a lot of the time, you know, I've got a great relationship with President Xi. What would be so wrong if we got along better with Russia? So in some senses, he doesn't seem to accept the inevitability of great power competition. Which... Is good. I mean, you always want to you want to keep the option open for change. I mean, I don't want to accept it either, right? Yeah. But I want to be open minded to have my eyes wide open to what's going on, right? Great if Russia and China become more democratic, um, more willing to cooperate, to work with us, uh, to be less confrontational. Great. Who wants a more confrontational world? But of course, you know, one of the things the president does all the time is tweet. Were there ever moments where you kind of thought? my God, you know, what's he just said, or... <laughs> I'm not on Twitter. So, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So I was, yeah, so I, I wasn't, um, yep, I wasn't on Twitter during those days, so... Last thing, last sort of um, big issue, the whole America First thing, again, we just heard it in the President's speech at the UN, this suspicion of what he calls globalism, the emphasis on the role of nation states and the sense that global governance has gone too far. I mean, I got the impression talking to you, you know, just now over breakfast, that that's something that you strongly agree with and that uh, you attempted to kind of turn into policy Mm -hmm. in the document. Yeah. Democracy begins within the confines of a state, essentially. So, um, you know, if you're a Democrat with a small d, you have to understand that. Part of the problems with the EU now are the arguments of overreach, which I sympathize with. Like, the EU is not, I'll get into trouble with your listeners, it's not a democratic institution, right? It's so far removed from the individuals living in nation states across Europe that that's why we're seeing these movements and the tension in Europe. So I do agree with democracy beginning within a nation state. Sovereignty is a part of that. And then you work with international institutions to achieve the best outcomes you can, but ultimately it's states that have power, it's states where people reside, and it's states that take the decisions in institutions like the UN as well, right? The UN Charter begins with talking about the sovereignty of the nation states that are part of the United Nations. So that's not inconsistent. Now we could go on talking all morning, but I think I should let you go. But just to pick you up on that last point, 
since it is UN week, we're sitting here, just down the road, there'll be lots of people who will bristle at what you just said and say, yeah, but there are these big international problems that states acting alone can't deal with, whether it's refugees or climate change. And the Trump administration's pulled out of the Human Rights Organization. It's pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord. And even if you have a theoretical attachment with some reason to democracy being connected to nations, if you push it too far, you're going to undermine efforts to deal with all these things. I would push back and argue that we're not pushing it too far. We're just rewriting a balance, a view that global institutions, globalization could solve all of these problems. And for the past 10 years, it hasn't effectively solved the problems of migration. It hasn't made huge progress on climate. These institutions are flawed institutions. Understanding the real dynamics of power, understanding that you need to build coalitions of the willing within these institutions, I personally believe is a more effective way to solve many of these problems. I'm not saying, and I don't think the president's saying, but I can't, obviously you can't speak for him, that states have to go it alone. It's just recognize the limits of these global institutions. And that, in effect, is a way toward making progress on the real problem sets by cooperating with like-minded countries to solve these complex problems. Okay, Nadia Chadlow, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. That was Nadia Shadlow, formerly of the Trump administration, speaking in New York. And that's it for this week. I hope you'll join me again next week. If you don't already subscribe to the show, you can do so in any podcast app. Just follow the link in our show notes. So until next week, goodbye. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 